Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Let's start with an observation, and then we will get into theological considerations. Yesterday, I heard a theologian, big name, internet theologian, and he was complaining about the Hillary Clinton Comey decision that the FBI decided not to, or at least suggested, that there not be any indictment. And so this theologian's comment on it was, well, the law is plain, and he read the law, and he said, our Constitution is plain, and the law is plain. The words on the page mean what they say. And I agreed with him. I thought, yes, politically, constitutionally, the words on the page mean what they say. But then I was frustrated by him because he went on to preach covenantal amillennialism which made me think, when did the words on the page stop meaning what they say? Baby steps. Baby steps. Apparently, if it's the law or the Constitution, there's one set of rules, and then when you read the Bible, there's this whole other set of rules, because so much of what he said just did not fit the biblical model. And since we've been saying for weeks now, that God is going to restore Israel because that's what it says plainly on the page and because we've been talking so much about our Israelology and combining that with our larger understanding of the Bible and Christianity, that comment just jumped out at me. If you read the Bible for exactly what it says on the page, then you're going to end up Premillennial, you're going to end up arguing for a future for Israel, and you're going to understand that human history culminates with God returning his attention back to national Israel. Now, this introduces some of the theology stuff. People ask me frequently, are you saying that there are two plans of salvation? And I always answer, no, I'm, I'm saying that all salvation is through Jesus Christ. Whether it is one person being saved or whether it's the nation of Israel being saved, the salvation still comes through Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that tonight. That's the next phase of what Mike is talking about. Now he's going to introduce the concept of the Savior to come, the Messiah to come, and that the reason for his coming is to save Israel. So even though we've been brought into a covenant with God by grace, and even though we've been afforded entrance via the new covenant and through faith in Jesus' finished work, there are not two ways of salvation, but there's certainly two pathways that God is operating in, because we know that the church goes away in the catching away. And we know that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that's Romans 11, then all Israel will be saved, who are then described as, as touching the gospel enemies for your sake. 
but is touching the election beloved for the Father's sake. So God is going to do something with Israel. He's going to keep every promise, every covenant, everything he ever said to them. He's going to fulfill that. It's all going to come to its fruition. But that's going to happen after the church has had the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and then the church has taken off the planet, and then the kingdom comes. And if we're here and we're in the kingdom, we are still, as the church, separate from what God is doing with Israel. Because that kingdom with the Israelites is made up of people who have entered the millennium still in a mortal fashion. Do you understand what I mean? They're going to go into the wilderness. God's going to preserve them. We're even going to see it tonight. He's going to take care of them and feed them for a time, times, half a time. But all that occurs after the church is gone. So God clearly has two schedules going on. He certainly has two pathways going on. Israel's never promised. You can look through the whole Old Testament. Israel has never promised a rapture, a catching away. That never happens. But the church is told that's what's going to happen to you. The church has never promised a return to sacrifices that were originally prescribed under the Mosaic Covenant. But according to Ezekiel, Israel's going to return to those things. And so you have to see those differences. You have to see those distinctions. But the whole thing, whether we're talking about the church, whether we're talking about Israel, all salvation is a result of the fact that God intervened into human history and he sent his son to come and to die to pay the sin penalty for everybody that God is ultimately going to save. He is the sacrifice. He is the way and the truth and the life, which he said, by the way, to an audience of Israelites. We as the church have Gentilized too many promises that belong to Israel, but even to Israel, Jesus proclaimed that he was the mediator, he is the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the way to God, whether Jew or Gentile. But God clearly has two different intentions for the church and Israel. For instance, maybe this will make it even plainer what I'm saying. He took Israel to Mount Sinai where he gave them the words of the law and he formed a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai including the Ten Commandments, the words of the covenant that were written on the tablets of the covenant which were put into the Ark of the Covenant and he made a covenant with Israel that day when Israel said everything that God has said we will do and that covenant included curses for not doing it. None of that applies to the church. God didn't do that with the church. He did not say to be in the church, you've got to come to the Middle East and you've got to come to Mount Sinai and you have to have a mediator come up on a hill and I'm going to give you statements written in stone and you have to abide by those rules and I will kill you if you don't do them. The church isn't told that. The church is told, come to Christ through faith and that just like Abraham, your faith will be exchanged for righteousness. So, big picture again. 
Everything that happens that is salvific happens through Christ. You're going to see it tonight. Micah talking about Israel's future puts the Messiah front and center in it. Salvation is always through Christ, but the intentions for the church and the intention for Israel are two different intentions. Got that? Make sense? Good. So now look at chapter 5. Right away, chapter 5, verse 1, talks about daughter of troops. Now muster yourselves into troops, daughter of troops. What that probably means is Israel, who he's prophesying to, is about to be overrun by Babylonian troops. And so they are told to muster themselves, to be prepared for the fact that the troops are coming, and hence the term daughter of troops, because then we read that they have laid siege against us. So that's why you would muster yourself into troops, to resist the fact that they've laid siege against us. And with a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now there's two interpretations that are primary or dominant for that part of that verse. One is perhaps this is a prophetic prediction of what's going to happen to Christ. That Christ here would be the judge of Israel and we know that he was struck. We know that they took reeds and they hit him in the head and in the face. Look up Mark 15:19 if you would, Tom. And uh, Micah, look up Matthew 27.30. And Jeff, look up John 19.3. All three of those verses are just going to say what I just said, that it is Christ who was repeatedly struck in the face. This sign of humiliation that was predicted here, that he was going to strike somebody on the cheek, might mean Christ is coming, and when the Messiah comes, who's going to be the subject in verse 2. And so that gives weight, gives credibility to this interpretation. If Christ is the person in mind here, then the fulfillment would be that he is struck in the face with a reed. What have you got, Tom? And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. What have you got, Micah? And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. What have you got, Jeff? And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him blows in the face. So all three of those gospel accounts say that Jesus was going to be struck in the face. And so they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. It might be Christ. But there are actually mitigating factors that that this is probably speaking about the last king who was alive in Jerusalem when the Babylonians attacked and overran Jerusalem. Zedekiah was taken into captivity and in fact was even blinded by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Here, if you want to look at it, 2 Kings 25. Keep your finger there in Micah. Turn to 2 Kings 25. In our study of 2 Kings, we didn't get that far yet, but it will tell us what happened to Zedekiah. Right at the end of 2 Kings, chapter 25, starting at verse 1, 
Everybody there. Now it came about in the ninth year of his reign, talking about Zedekiah, on the tenth day of the tenth month that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army, against Jerusalem, camped against it, and built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night. By way of the gate between the two walls beside the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went by way of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. So the king initially escaped, got out of the city, got as far as Jericho, which you know is right up to the Jordan River, and they captured him there. Look at verse 7. And they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. And then they plundered and burned Jerusalem. Go back to the book of Micah. So, so this phrase, with a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek might be a sign of the humiliation of Zedekiah. And I think the very fact that there's then a transition at the very beginning of verse 2 that says, but at that point, I think Micah the prophet leaps forward in time. He leaps forward in history. There's going to be a humiliation of your king. He's going to be struck, but something good is going to happen. And so that's why I think historically it's about Zedekiah, it's about the kings of Jerusalem and the fall of Jerusalem more than I think it's about Christ because if it's about Christ, you can't then say, but there's going to be a child born because you're talking about his death before you talk about his birth. So that takes us to verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, Ephratah, is an area in which Bethlehem was, sort of like the county around the city. It's about five miles from Jerusalem. You can find it back in Genesis 35 and Genesis 48. Ephratah is called Ephrath in those verses. And that's the older name for Bethlehem and the area around Bethlehem. Now, what's interesting about this is that King David was born in Bethlehem, even though it was a small, insignificant little town. So insignificant, in fact, that in Joshua 15 and Nehemiah 11, the clans of Judah are listed, and they're listed by where they live. And so the cities, the towns of Judah are described, and Bethlehem isn't even included. Is too small to be counted. And so here Micah says that Bethlehem, Ephratah, look at the next verse, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Well, that's right. Bethlehem wasn't even listed among the cities of Judah. So David was born in Bethlehem. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 16. 
as was his greatest descendant, Jesus. All right, here we go again. Tom, look up Matthew 2, 1 to 6. You're going to get to read six verses. And this confused people. There were people within Judea who were convinced that Messiah was Jesus, that he was doing great works, but they were also confused by it because they knew that he actually was from Nazareth. And they couldn't figure out how the prediction that he was going to come from Bethlehem could be true of him because he's clearly a Nazarene. So somebody look up John 7.42. We're going to let April do that and make her read really loud. And this will be fun. John 7.42 is going to talk about their confusion. So let's start in Matthew 2, 1 to 6, because this is the place where Herod the king actually asks the leaders in Jerusalem, the wise men, where is the Messiah going to be born? And they quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, because they know that Micah predicted that Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Read it. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will be the shepherd, my people Israel. Micah is just referred to as the prophet, but the very fact that Matthew would quote Micah in order to validate that Jesus was born in Bethlehem shows you what kind of credibility the Jews gave to the book of Micah. They recognized that his prophecies were true, that they actually came to be. Now that fact, as I said, the fact that he was born in Bethlehem but then immediately, with his parents, was taken back to Nazareth. The folks in the area who knew him and knew his family were confused by the fact that the prophecy said he would be born in Bethlehem, and they didn't know that's where he was born. They thought he was born in Nazareth. So read it for us, if you would, April, John seven forty-two. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So haven't the prophets said that the Messiah is going to come from the city of David? He's going to come from Bethlehem? Go ahead and read the next part. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. So there was real confusion that broke out about him because he was clearly doing the things that Messiah was supposed to do. He was doing miracles such as no man had ever done. But he wasn't technically born in the right place, was their thinking, even though all the way back here in Micah, we've got the prediction that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. We have the confirmation that he was born in Bethlehem in the book of Matthew. And of course, we all know that even though he was born in Bethlehem, just like the scripture said, he was in Nazareth for the rest of his life, pre his ministry. Now, all of that combined shows me something really important which is God moved 
on a Roman governor to say that there had to be a census, there had to be a taxation, and it was going to require everybody to go back to their legendary homeland. And because both Mary and Joseph had David in their line, in their lineage, they had to go back to Bethlehem. That was their homeland. And God worked it out so that Mary would have the baby at the exact moment, not even in an inn, not even where anybody would know it or record it, but in a manger in Bethlehem, God fulfilled the exact prophecy that he gave all the way back here in Micah, and nobody knew it. The wise men who came, came a couple years later. As far as we know, a couple shepherds found out. And that was all the people who knew it. So God fulfilled his word, he satisfied his prophecy, and he did it in such a way that only those he wanted to reveal it to ever had it revealed to them. And God would move nations, move a Roman governor to come up with a taxation and a census just to get one little Jewish virgin to Bethlehem on time to have her baby and then go away again. I just think that's fascinating. That is a sign of God's interest in the details and that in order to make his word come true, he can even move heathen kings to announce things exactly on time so that his word comes true. And that fascinates me. Now, Micah says, Bethlehem Ephratah is too little to be among the clans of Judah, but from you, one will go forth for me. Someone's going to go forth on my behalf, says God. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. That's really important because the reason Jesus came to the planet, yes, was to save Jennifer. Yes, was to save Thaddeus. Yes, was to save Gentiles and bring about his ecclesia, his church. Yes. But the primary purpose for which he came to the planet, according to this prophecy, which already has astounding accuracy to it, the reason he came to earth was to be ruler in Israel. And you can't say that's the church. Because at this point, when Micah's writing, he not only knows nothing of the church, the church hasn't been revealed yet, but he has repeatedly talked about Israel all the way through this book. And so if you change the meaning of the word Israel, then you have to change it all the way through this book. Or if you're going to argue for continuity, you have to say that Micah knew what Israel was, he knew what Judah was, he knew what Israel collectively, all 12 tribes was, and that's what he was talking about, that Jesus came to be ruler in Israel. And so I argue again that God has a plan, a course, an intention for Israel. And it includes his son becoming ruler on the planet over Israel. But now notice what he says about the son. This is very, very deep theology. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So when this child comes, when this Messiah comes, that's not the beginning of his life. 
That's not the beginning of his existence. He has existed. His going forth, his coming in, his, his very being has existed since eons and eons forever ago. And then he showed up on planet Earth for a little while. And he's going to be that one, that eternal one, is going to be the ruler in Israel. And so Micah seems to have a very deep and very significant Christological kind of thinking. He understands that this Messiah to come is not just going to be a human person who's going to take over rulership in Israel. He understands that the one who's coming is, number one, coming from God, number two, going to rule over Israel, and number three, that he has ever existed. And his days are from eternity. And so Micah's expecting one that has all those qualities. Now, with that, with that verse, essentially what Micah has done is that he's leapt from Israel of old and Israel being overtaken by the Babylonians right to the birth of Christ when God intervenes in human history. And therefore, verse 3, therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren, who's this one that's to come, this Messiah, the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Okay, so let's talk about that for a minute. He will give them up until the time. He's going to scatter them. He's going to drive them into the Gentile nations. He's going to have the Assyrian captivity come down on the northern tribes and the Babylonian captivity on the southern tribes. And there's a plan. God knows the times and the seasons, and he knows exactly when it's going to be that he's going to regather those very same people from all those lands, from all those Gentiles, and he's going to bring them back to their land because... He has already promised his son from all eternity, you're going to rule over Israel. There has to be an Israel for God's son to rule over. And so Micah sees it as, therefore, he's going to give them up until the time. But when she who is in labor has borne a child. Now, again, some folks have seen that to be Mary giving birth to the Messiah. I don't necessarily agree with that I think is referring to the restoration of Israel the nation born in a day I think the fulfillment of it is what's written about coming right up the remainder of his brethren the remainder of Christ's brethren they will return to the sons of Israel and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. That's where his strength is going to come from. The reason he's going to be able to shepherd his flock, the reason he's going to be able to lead his flock in peace and harmony, the reason that he's going to be ruler over all of Israel is because he's going to have the strength of God himself at his command. And that's what it's going to take. When you look at the world right now and you say, man, nothing can make this better. Nothing can improve this situation. How many times have I kind of joked about the fact that people think, well, the next person, the next guy, whether it's Hillary or whether it's the Donald, that one of them, somebody's going to fix this. 
and nobody so far has fixed it. It just keeps getting worse and getting worse and getting worse. And it's not going to be any man who's going to fix it. It's not going to be a human who's going to have the power to fix it. It's going to take Christ returning with the power of God to make every knee bow, to make every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It's going to take that kind of authority and that kind of power to once again be a ruler in the collective 12 tribes of Israel. He will arise and he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. Somebody look up. Tom, you're going to look up something else. Look up Psalm 72.8. Jennifer, look up Zechariah 14.9. These are just a couple of the prophecies in the Old Testament that say that not only is Jesus coming back in order to be the ruler over Israel, but his dominion, his lordship, his rulership, his kingship is going to advance over the whole earth. For instance, Psalm 72.8 says, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And from the river to the ends of the earth. So he's going to have dominion. He's going to have rulership over the whole planet. What does Zechariah 14.9 say? And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The prophets all speak again with one voice. That even though the blessings are going to come to Israel, even though the rulership is going to be in Israel, even though Christ is going to sit on David's throne, his rulership, his dominion is going to spread over the whole planet. But it's going to come out from Jerusalem. Oh, I've got so many verses and so many things we can do. But let's do this. Because I said a minute ago that what Micah has done in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, and really to verse 5, is that he has leapt over the first incarnation of Christ, the first birth of Christ on the planet. He's then leapt over to the eschatological end when Christ is going to be ruler over Jerusalem. And actually, this happens a lot in the Bible, where you see this conflation of everything that Christ is going to do. You see it especially in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets saw everything that Christ would do as one complete whole. He was going to come, he was going to be born, and then he was going to set up the kingdom, and he was going to rule, and that was the end of everything. What we find out in the New Testament is that he came to the planet, he taught, he told us about God, he died for the sins of his chosen elect people, and then we know that the last thing he did was sail off to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And we're all anticipating, like I said this past Sunday, we're all anticipating the return of Christ. We're really looking forward to Christ coming back because he still has things that he's going to do. He still has to be the ruler over Israel. He still has to establish dominion over the planet. He still has to bring in everlasting righteousness. All these things still have to happen. And there's a gap in the middle that none of the Old Testament prophets seem to see, which Paul refers to as the times of the Gentiles. 
that until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And once that happens, then God is going to return his attention to Israel. Then all Israel will be saved. And so let me show you a couple examples, one of which is actually my favorite. But somebody look up Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Thaddeus, you haven't read anything. Turn to Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, and the rest of us are going to go to Isaiah 61. Keep your finger there in Micah. And turn to Isaiah 61, and we're going to have Micah read. You're going to know this. The reason I'm going to have him read it is that you're going to be really, really familiar with this. But it's a good example of what I'm talking about. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says... For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Okay, hold on. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. So there's a child who's going to be born... He was actually born by Mary, but the Son, the Son of God, was given to us as a gift. And when he uses the word us in Isaiah's context, who is he talking about? Who's us? Israel. Exactly. Christ is given to Israel. Okay. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And? And the government will rest on his shoulders. Wait. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Did that happen? Not yet. Did he take up the reins of government when he was here? Did he rule as a king? No. But did Isaiah see it all as one inclusive package? He did. He saw the child born, the son given, and the government to be on his shoulders. That's why he has to come back in order to rule over Israel because the government does have to be on his shoulders or else Isaiah is a false prophet. Go ahead and read some more. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with the justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Okay, now the end of that says the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. But notice that there's going to be no end to his reign, no end to his government and his peace. That hasn't happened yet. So there's a government coming that Christ is going to rule and reign over. And when he rules and reigns, there will finally be peace on the planet and there will be no end to his government. That's what Isaiah has predicted. It's the same thing that Micah has predicted. Is everybody in Isaiah 61? Everybody look at Isaiah 61 except Micah because Micah is going to look at Luke 4 starting at verse 14. I've done this before, but it's worth doing. Because Isaiah 60 does see, or Isaiah 61, does see everything Christ is going to do as one complete whole. But Christ himself is going to point out in Luke, in the synagogue, he's going to point out that everything Isaiah said is fulfilled in him but part of it won't happen yet. And so you've got Jesus' own example of how to separate these prophecies from the Old Testament between what has already happened in his incarnation and what's going to happen in his return. 
For instance, it says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. You're looking at Luke 4.14, right? Okay, so Jesus is in the temple, he's in there, and the scroll is handed to him. And he takes the scroll and opens it to this passage in Isaiah 61. And he begins reading from Isaiah 61, right? So far I'm right? Yeah, verse 18. And when he begins saying these things, he is saying, they're fulfilled in me right now in your hearing. So start reading at verse 14 and let's catch up to the point where it says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Okay, verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogue and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and stood up to read, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Okay, no, hold on. Isaiah says, Because the Lord has anointed me. Is that what it says right there? The next phrase in Luke 4 says that also. To bring good news to the afflicted. The language would be slightly different between the Hebrew and the Greek. And... Okay, different words, same thing. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What does it say there? Yeah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, uh, release the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Okay, now what does it say after that? It'll say he sat down. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and all the, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say. And he began to say, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, so Isaiah said it, and then Jesus said, That's fulfilled right now. The fact that you heard me say it, satisfies that entire prophecy, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. The only problem is, if you're looking at Isaiah 61, verse 2, it says to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, comma, and in Luke's account, Jesus stopped reading and he sat down. But the prophecy from Isaiah says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And then he goes on with the prophecy. But Jesus stopped right at the point that says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, stop. But in Isaiah, it's comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. Well, the day of vengeance of our God isn't going to occur till he comes back. When he comes back to set up Israel, to call in the 12 tribes, to set up his, his throne, which is David's throne, to rule from Jerusalem. When he does all that, 
that's going to be a result of the time of tribulation, a time of trouble on the planet such as never was or ever would be, that Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble. That's the day of vengeance of our God. All of that's going to occur, but it didn't occur the first time that he came to the planet. So everything in this prophecy, Jesus said, was fulfilled in the fact that he was there. But he stopped short of saying, the day of vengeance of our God is fulfilled. He separated the beginning and the end of a sentence in a prophecy. And so the Old Testament prophets do this repeatedly. They see Jesus, the Messiah. They see everything he's going to do as one big collective whole. And that's the same thing that's happening in Micah. Do you, do you get it now? You get a feel for it? Go back to Micah. Because in verse 2, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child, and then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock. Okay, he didn't do that the first time he came. He came and he was born, which Micah says he was born in Bethlehem, Ephratah. He is the one that is from everlasting. But then Micah leaps right from that birth to he's going to rule Israel, and he's going to make sure that the 12 tribes all come back from all the areas that God scattered them, and he's going to shepherd his flock all of these things he has not done yet. So I would argue, my point behind all of this, is that I would argue that if the first part of the prophecy came true, if the first part of unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, if that came true, then the government will be upon his shoulders. But it just hasn't happened yet. If it is true that he could say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he has anointed me, and today these words are fulfilled in your hearing, and all of that is true, then so is the day of vengeance of our God. That's also true. That has to happen. If it is true that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Ephratah, and that he was from everlasting ago, and then he came to the planet, if that's all true, then I have to agree that he is also going to gather and return all the sons of Israel and arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. The first part's true. The first part is demonstrably true. The first part is historically true. The first part you can look at and say, I see the fulfillment of it. So then you have to agree that the second half is also true because it's said many times by many people, and they have their evidence in history. You got that? So this again, I know I sound like a broken record, but this again is why I don't allow people to say, well, it's all satisfied in the church, or God is done with Israel, or any of those kinds of things, because the Bible is plain. Like I started tonight, the words on the page mean what they say. The language is plain, that God has an intention for future Israel. All right, we've got to go. Verse 4, he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. 
and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. So in other words, when he gathers his brethren, when he establishes Israel, they are then going to remain. They're not going to be scattered anymore. They're not going to be driven off their land anymore because he is going to be the one that establishes them and establishes the ends of the earth. Verse 5, and to this one will be our peace. Remember what Thaddeus read for us just a moment ago that Isaiah said that of the end of his government, the end of the peace, there's going to be, or of his government and of his peace, there's going to be no end. Micah agrees with that. He's the one, Jesus, the Lord, is going to come and he's going to establish peace that's never going to be done away with. And this is the one who will be our peace. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men, and they will shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our lands and when he tramples our territory. All this is saying, he's reassuring Israel that though they're going to go into the Assyrian captivity, the day is coming when they're going to take up swords and they're going to shepherd Assyria. The tables are going to be turned and Israel is going to have power and authority over Assyria. The word Nimrod there, Nimrod, the book of Genesis, you read about Nimrod. He was the first man to become great among other men. And so Nimrod is a phrase that God uses to remind them that they've become too high, too mighty, just like Nimrod, the first mighty man. And they've gotten raised up in the way that they've been, but Israel is ultimately going to trample them down. And they will shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. Let me just throw this in for free. It's getting later, so I've got to hurry here. But let me throw this in. I knew a pretty good prophecy preacher years ago who used this passage to say that if this is talking about the fact that the Antichrist is going to oppress Israel and then Israel is going to eventually throw off the yoke of the Antichrist in order to accept the rulership of Christ. Well, if that's all true and if that's what Micah has in mind here, then Micah is referring to that Antichrist figure as the Assyrian. He made a big deal of that. He said the Antichrist is going to be Assyrian Look in the area where Assyria used to be, he used to argue. But if you look in the area where the Assyrian used to be, whether that's the person or the nation, if you look at where Assyria was, those are where the chief enemies of Israel are today. Those are the areas that are claiming they're going to blow Israel off the map. The ancient enemies of Israel and the Jews. That's the area that they're in. And so, of course, they would get the nickname Assyrians, even though there won't be any Assyria. There is none now. There's no Assyria in the Middle East right now. There is a place called Syria, but there's no 
of Syria, the land of the Moabites. That doesn't exist anymore. But in that region, in that area, in that landmass, there are people who are descendants of that nation who still to this day have a deep, almost inexplicable hatred for Israel. And I find that fascinating because that proves that God is once again in charge of human history. Why didn't that people group move somewhere else? Why didn't they all collectively as a group go to Sweden? Why didn't they just go somewhere? They stayed right there. Why? Because God said that they're the ones he's going to use in the end times in order to bring the Gentiles against Jerusalem, in order to bring about the time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again, so that Christ can come back and rule with the rod of iron and bring peace to Israel and, and satisfy all of these prophecies that have been around for so very long. So whether it's the Assyrian, meaning the Antichrist who isn't Assyrian, maybe he is. Maybe that guy knew what he was talking about. I, I don't know. Or whether it's talking about the nation, the group that's going to attack Israel and attack uh, Jerusalem ultimately that are going to be in the area of Assyria once again we see God's absolute control over human history then we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men and they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword the land of Nimrod at its entrances and they will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land when he tramples our territory then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples. They're going to be so scattered at that point among all the Gentile peoples that they're going to be like the dew from the Lord. The dew that comes down from heaven that covers all the landscape, that's what the remnant of Jacob is going to be like. Like showers on vegetation, which do not wait for man... Man's not controlling this. Man's not in charge of where the Israelites all are. God is in charge of it, and he's not waiting for men. And they do not delay for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among the peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which, if he passes through, tramples down and tears and there will be none to rescue so now he's saying that when when israel conquers assyria when israel becomes the most powerful nation on the planet they're going to be like a lion moving through the peoples so they're no longer going to be helpless or victims they're no longer going to be run over by their enemies, but they're going to run over all their enemies. Verse 9 says, your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be cut off. And it will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you. We don't have time to look at it, but from the very beginning, when God gave Israel their king, their first king, he was very specific to say, don't put your trust in horses. Don't go into Egypt to get your horses. Don't put your trust in many chariots. Just if you trust God, God will take care of you. But if they put their trust and their hope in their military might, then they were going to eventually be conquered because it would be their might against other people's might. But if they trust in God's power, 
God alone, he was going to protect them. So when God takes over, when God does gather his 12 tribes back together, he says, I will cut off your horses from among you and I will destroy your chariots. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. They're going to have to rely on God himself. They're going to have to rely on the power and the authority of the one that God sets up in David's throne. And then God goes past that. Now, again, this is Israel who went into false worship. This is Israel who too many people have said, God's done with Israel because they broke his law and they followed their sorceries and their witchcrafts and they followed after foreign gods. And so God's helpless. God can't do anything about it. God gave them the free will to do whatever they wanted and they chose to rebel against him. And therefore God has no choice but to give them all up. Look at verse 12. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you will have fortune tellers no more. Who's going to do it? God's going to do it. Sure, they chased after all the foreign gods. Sure, they had their sorceries and their witchcraft. In a minute, he's going to say, I'm going to cut off your high places. I'm going to cut off your Asherah. I'm going to cut off the places where you went and worshipped those foreign gods because I'm the only God. And because I'm the only God, I will make sure that all of your other things that I object to, all your breaking of the law, your sins, that'll be satisfied in Christ. All of your worship of foreign gods, I'm going to cut that off. All your witchcrafts and sorceries that I never liked to begin with, I'm going to cut all that off. In other words, the solution to Israel's problem isn't going to be Israel doing better. It's going to be God forgiving them and cleaning them up. And I, again, like that because if it were left to me or you or any of us, we don't have the power. We don't have the ability to make ourselves good enough for God to say, all right, come on in. So God takes responsibility for it and says to Israel, I will cut off your sorceries from your hand and you will have fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. First off, he sees the idols as nothing more than the work of their hands, something they carved and cut out and then bowed down to. But God said, since you're doing that, I'm the one who's going to stop you. I will stop you from chasing your foreign gods, and I will have you worshiping me. How? By putting his spirit in Israel, saving a nation as a day, having them look on him whom they have pierced, weep as a mother over her only child. How many things do I have to keep saying before we just all kind of agree that God has a great intention for national Israel still? It's a different intention than he has for the church, but it's a grand intention. I will cut off your carved images, your sacred pillars. I will cut off from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root out your ashram from among you and destroy your cities. And I will execute vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. God's going to make them obey. God's going to bring that about. Now, one last, one last piece. Turn to Revelation 13. 
No, turn to Revelation 12. Turn to the back of the book. Revelation 12. Now that you know all that, now that you know all of Micah's language and the Isaiah language, now we can begin to understand John, who I believe his primary audience was Israelites. He's writing primarily to uh, Israel, telling them what's going to befall them in the days to come. And the vast majority of what John says, which, by the way, when you read Paul talking about it, Paul says that he went to the uncircumcised, but that Peter, John, and James went to the circumcision. So I'm not making this up. Clearly, John was an apostle to the circumcision. And so that's why I believe that his gospel and the revelation have so many uh, Israelitish references and so much Israel language and so much talk of temples and prophets and all of that. He's predicting what's going to happen to Israel in the final conflagration in the end of days. But he's going to also predict that a remnant of Israel, same language that we've been seeing out of Micah, that a remnant of Israel is going to be saved by God. Let's start at Verse 13. Is that where I want to be? Yeah, let's start there. And when the dragon saw, the dragon is Satan, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to a male child. Okay, who's the woman who gave birth to a male child? We read it out of Isaiah earlier. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Israel's is referred to repeatedly as a woman. And so I believe, and you're going to see it in a, in a moment even more clearly, that he's referring to Israel, who gave birth to the Christ. Verse 14, And the two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. Okay, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then you'll know it's time to flee. You that are in Judea, flee. In fact, he even said, flee in such a way that if you've left something in your house, don't go back for it. Just get out. If you're in the field, don't go into the city. Just go flee. And the fleeing is described by John as on the wings of an eagle because they're going to move so quickly to get out from under the wrath that's going to come. And two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness, look at the next phrase, to her place. It was prepared all the way back in Daniel. He even said, when that happens, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee into Ammon, into Moab, into why can't I ever think of the third one? Edom. Into Edom. And so Daniel even predicted where Israel's going to go. And here John called it her place, the place that was prepared for her ever since Daniel. That she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. What's a time, times, and half a time? Three and a half. It's also called 42 months in this book. It's also called 1,260 days. 
John did the math for you so you would know exactly how long it was going to be. So for three and a half years, a remnant of Israel living in Judea has fled into the area that God has prepared for them that has been prophesied all the way back in Daniel that Jesus reminded them they were going to have to do. And so verse 15, and the serpent poured water out like a, like a river out of his mouth after that woman so that he might cause her to be swept away in the flood. Satan's going to try to get to her and try to kill her. And the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon poured out of its mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. That's exactly what we know is going to happen from all the prophets in the Old Testament, that ultimately the dragon, the Antichrist, the, the final world ruler is going to go make war with Israel. First, the remnant is removed. Then after they are removed, he, knowing he can't get to them, takes after Israel, their brethren. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So, everything that we've read in the Old Testament, is confirmed in the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament. So I argue one more time that God is making exactly or telling exactly one story. He's telling one story of human history, and it all revolves around Israel. So yay for us, we're the church. Yay for us, we get to go to heaven through faith in Christ's finished work. But that's not the end of it. That's not the end of God's intentions. He plans to keep every promise he's ever made to Israel. And so he's going to. Got it? Got it. You know, on the internet, they can't hear your heads rattle when you nod. So, what'd you say? I said it's a good plan. It's a good plan. It's God's plan. Good. We got all that in in one night. I'm glad. Any questions about that? All right, then. See ya, Internet people. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.